Okay, welcome to Brian Talks to Humans, a people's podcast about everyday people. It's a sunny Sunday morning. Dogs were just lounging outside for a little while. And I got up pretty early as usual, so I'll be taking nap number one very soon. Then I'll be doing the exciting weekend stuff that I do. Grading and maybe a little writing and laundry and groceries. All the fun stuff. But I may be talking to a few people tonight uh, about something that I think you all will find interesting if it if it actually comes through. So today's human is my friend Michael. Uh, I met Michael, who I call him by his last name a little bit too, Iovino, which a lot of people do. Uh, I met him when some researchers at local universities brought together some teachers in the area to write a uh, YPAR curriculum. YPAR stands for Youth Participatory Action Research. And, you know, we got along great and, you know, sort of have similar social justice-oriented missions to our teaching and know the value of a strong teacher's union, etc. And, you know, we've, uh, we've kept in touch ever since. I wish I saw him more, but I was really glad that he came by to talk. He's uh, had a lot of you know, different life experiences, so it stays very active, you know, he's 10 years older than me, and is riding motorcycles, and going on solo camping trips, and all that sort of thing, you know, and uh, with Ivino, you just, you know, push a button, and he goes, as you'll see, you know, he can talk, and I, you know, don't mean that in a bad way at all, he's an interesting, high-energy kind of guy, so the last episode I did, we had plans to break it into two parts, and that never came through, which is cool. You know, I'll, I'll get around to talking to Okaikor again. This time, though, we are going to break Ivino's interview into two pieces. And in part one, uh, this episode, we're going to talk about his younger days, some of the different jobs he bounced around in before he got into teaching, and then some of his experiences and philosophies as a teacher. Remember to stay tuned after the end of the interview. I'm not just begging for money. I'm going to preview part two of this episode. And I have a special request for the however many people who are in fact listening. So here we go. Uh, Iovino, a.k.a. Michael, part one. Okay, folks, we're back in Brian Talks to Humans HQ, tiny apartment in Montclair with our guest and two dogs crammed into a tight space because uh, today's guest is a trooper and uh, (laughs) doesn't mind doing that, I guess. He's a dog guy, too. Today's human is... Michael Iovino. All right. So, uh, I usually start off asking people about their intro music. So, uh, My War, Black Flag. Yeah. Uh, why'd you pick that one? Uh, Black Flag has always been pretty important to me in my adult years. I didn't discover, I guess, punk and hardcore music until I was probably in a... Let's say, I think when I started doing my student teaching, uh, really. Um, but Black Flag, just for that, that angry energy, 
and my war specifically kind of just like talks about like you know this is my war you know and i'm i'm gonna fight it and you know you can't tell me what to do and so it's a it's one of those powerful songs a lot of screaming a lot of rage do you does that match your your personality at all or i you know it's funny because uh, a friend of mine at work uh william graff makes constant references to to my passion for henry rollins and he goes where's your henry where's your henry um and I think in my, my last couple of years, I've mellowed out a little bit. Mm. I mean, it's still in there. There's certain things that I just, you know, really trigger me and I want to, I really do want to rage and fight about. And I look at Henry Rollins and I watch him now and, you know, I follow him and I listen to his podcast and stuff like that. And he's mellowed out too. So I just mm. feel like there's kind of a parallel there. Right. But uh, yeah, it's a powerful song and it's, it, it still kind of connects to me. Right on. So let's talk about like chapter one of. Mike's life. Tell us a little bit about when you were young. Uh, you know, I grew up in Belleville. I think it was uh, probably a pretty normal, you know, what you'd expect. You know, child. My, the day that I was born, my father came in and handed divorce papers to my mother and said, I'm out. Uh, two weeks later, he, you know, got engaged. And, you know, so I grew up the first couple years of my life. I didn't have a father. And I thought that was kind of cool and totally normal because I was too young to interact with people who had dads and it wasn't kind of strange to me. Um, so I grew up really close to my mom. And then eventually she met a dude and they got married. So I had a stepdad and now I have stepsisters and we kind of grew up together and that was kind of cool. Um, eventually my mom and dad, my stepdad, who I call dad, of course, they had a daughter. And so I grew up with my little sister, you know, and we grew up very, very close, which was nice. Um, and then in recent years, I've connected with my half brother and half sister that my biological father had not too long after. And I have a great relationship with them. Um, but growing up in Belleville, you know, it's, it was pretty typical. You grew up, most of the, the adults in Belleville were the kids of those who grew up in Newark. And probably left during the white flight or just kind of like we're moving up and out kind of thing. So they went to the Belleville Bloomfield area. Um, so they brought with them all that, you know, Newark Italian, Newark whiteness. And so I grew up pretty much like, you know, I'm an Italian. I went through my Guido phase. I went through <laughs> this thing, like everything that you could you would remember and, and, and kind of connect to. And, you know, that was me growing up. I mean, I think at some point after I saw Rambo, I probably walked around with like shoestring on my head, never wore Cavarici. So I was, I'm very proud of myself for that, <laughs> which, is, which was a big, yeah. a big accomplishment. Um, but then as I got a little older, you know, things started to change. I started to interact with different people uh, and kind of learn a little bit more about what's going on in the world. And, you know, things changed. Uh, and then, of course... You know, like uh, the being the first kid, even though I had older brother and sister, I was the first one who went off to college, and mm -hmm. Rutgers was the financial right. option for my family, mm -hmm. 1986. And so, you commuted to Rutgers. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. Drove back and yeah. forth, and it was like me and a couple of my close friends and the girlfriend that I had at the time, and we went, and there was a bunch of other people from Belleville that we knew that were there, so it was kind of like a, a good group of us that knew each other, so it was, it was nice, um, and I was uh, pre-med when I went in and of course really? I, was, I didn't know that <laughs> listen my, my 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 academic story runs runs pretty interesting so yeah I was pre-med completely pre-med um until I realized that you actually did need to know mathematics you know to do some complex chemistry calculations and things like that and yeah I was gently asked to remove myself from any hope and and that chemistry class so my freshman year was like a like a hope holy crap like suddenly I'm like nope those those that dream is off take you know take that off your list and of course my grades kind of suffered and 
and here I am at a very inexpensive school and a local school and a good school. And my parents are like, hey, you know, you failed too many classes your first cycle, your first you know semester. You're not going back. And I'm like, no, 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 I got this. I got this. So I turned around and then I went poli sci. It was poli sci and psychology, which, okay. which I really enjoyed. All my friends were accountant majors. So they needed like 124 out of 133 credits in that major to graduate, whereas Poli sci was thirty three, psych was eighteen because I was minoring, not majoring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Gave me an opportunity to take a ton of ton right, of different right. kinds of courses, which I really enjoyed. Well, let's rewind a, a, a little yeah, bit. Um, so, you said uh, earlier when we um, before we recorded, you died when you were four. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah, so that was the age of tonsils must come out. Okay. Um, so my, my brother was a year and a year and eleven months older than I was. And we both went in together to have our tonsils removed. And I mean, I remember this so vividly. It's, it's, it's surreal. But, you know, I remember being in the hall on the gurney waiting to go in. And I remember there being an orderly who was like drawing me pictures of superheroes because he knew that I liked superheroes and stuff. And I was kind of nervous. And I remember going into the room and I remember laying down, seeing that light above you. And then I remember the mask coming over my my face, and then I just remember spasming, spazzing out like, like, and they thought that I was scared, so I'm like, hold them down, hold them down, hold them down, and then I completely blacked out. I wake up and I'm in the room with my brother. Now the surgery was successful for him, and it wasn't for me, but I don't know that. And I'm sitting there in my and I'm crying because my brother has like all the gauze in his face. I'm like, oh my god, what happened to him? And everybody's coming to visit me. And, and I'm, you know, my, my brother's laying in the bed and he's like all out of it. And people are coming to see my mother was crying. And I'm like, so I didn't find out until years later that it just so happens that I was deathly allergic to ether, Mm. which is what they used at the time. I think they mixed it with something. I'm actually supposed to wear the bracelet, even though they don't use it anymore. Um, but I died. Like I flatlined. It was like a anaphylactic shock and my lungs filled up with fluid and they had to resuscitate me the whole nine. Yeah. So as a result of that, I have a very, very strong... Um, resistance to doing anything that's going to knock me out, mm. whether that be a procedure. And here it is, I'm 51 years old. They tell me I have to go get a colonoscopy. And I'm like, they can do that with me conscious, right? And they're like, not really. I'm like, well, they're going to try. <laughs> they're going to yeah, try. Because yeah. I just don't want to go unconscious. I really so um, then you haven't been much of a drinker, I guess, right? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I went through a large period of my life where I, I never, never touched a drink. Um, but so by the time I started drinking again, I was beyond the reckless drinking to the yeah, point yeah, of yeah. passing out phase. Yeah, because I know a few people who who don't maybe they didn't die when they were four, but they they have this like I cannot lose control of my faculties kind of thing. Yeah. It's the loss of control that yeah. they yeah. are 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 into and uh, and don't don't drink or get high. Yeah, you know, because of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything that I do, I I try and do in moderation. You know, like I said, I went through a large period where. I really wasn't uh, touching anything. I mean, now it's like I, you know, I throw out more alcohol than I ever consume. Mm. You know, I buy it and it's in the house and if somebody comes to visit or whatever. But typically I, I'm tossing mm. it. You know, a bottle of whiskey might last you know, a couple of years. So I'm not a heavy drinker. You know, I try and keep, you know, what goes in my body pretty clean for the most part. You know, a lot of organic and, you know, I'm, I've been a vegetarian for 23 years and, you know, so and a Buddhist, so that kind of helps. You know, in right. terms of that whole big picture of what I'm doing with my my body and stuff and my life, I guess. So we have a a, a person who had a traumatic experience at four years old, yeah, and had you know a father who left. Like, um, have either of these other than the sort of uh, 
uh, aversion to getting knocked out, taking a lot of medicine, that sort of thing. Either of these have cast a long shadow at all, or no. And uh, so I've been very good at, uh, especially post-divorce, I've been very good at self-reflection and learning from what my mind and, and what life is telling me. And I think in recent years, especially having reconnected with a brother that up until, you know, uh, five years ago, six years ago, I had, you know, mm -hmm. knew existed, but never really made contact with. I, I think the, the, not necessarily the abandonment of the father, but getting a, re a replacement um, and kind of having a, what, I, what I remember as like a really good relationship with my mom and then now doing the, going through that whole sharing thing and then watching, at this point in my life, I'm still not thrilled with the relationship my parents have. Um, so I think that that is always in my head in terms of, of, of my interactions with people. So I think, I think it's a positive thing in a sense because I'm very conscious and aware of how you know, if I'm in a relationship, how I'm thinking and treating and discussing and talking to um, the person that I'm in a relationship with. But uh, I definitely, definitely have a, uh, a strong opinion about my stepdad, my father. Okay. Yeah. I so, saw, I mean, I, I think just related to him, mm -hmm. but not in terms of like this deep rooted psychological perspective kind of a thing um the death thing i think it's just really comes down to like i don't want to be unconscious you know yeah. i figure i tempted fate once i don't know how you know i don't know how i don't i know i don't have nine lies I, <laughs> but i don't know how many i yeah. have and i've already used one and i use it so early yeah. and now i just get into an accident and everybody's like you know yeah. you could have died you could have died i'm like ah this one doesn't even come close this was just like a 30 mile an hour motorcycle accident yeah. that was nothing that one that one killed me so, yeah yeah so right i gotta on, be aware right. of that Right. Uh, so what's Mike like in, in Belleville High School? What's it like to be a teenager navigating <laughs> adolescence in that town? Um, I was class clown. Mm -hmm. Oh, exactly. So um, I grew up a very funny kid um, because of the interaction. My father, I'm 51 now. My father said, I'm sorry, twice in my entire life. One of them was three years ago when we got into a fist fight in, in Disney World. Yeah. <laughs> The Magical Kingdom. <laughs> Absolutely. Which is like one of those weird, like, I mean, likes going to Disney World. And that's a whole explanation sure, there. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I could, that's actually, no. I have to go back and I have to explain that. So when people say, you know, I've been to Disney World like 40 some odd times. Uh, yeah, yeah, right? I remember. Yeah. So, so, I mean, in terms of my... Uh, my my anti-capitalism in terms of my unionism like that's not the place where you go to yeah so i have to explain to people so here's what it is growing up my father was the typical nork italian alpha male you know curse swear do what i say i don't want the stuff on the steps i feel like i in my memory i feel like i got beat every sunday and when i said that to my mom she goes no you didn't i said i think i got beat every sunday sometimes <laughs> just because it was sunday um but whenever he had a freak out, he always wanted to make up for it somehow. So he either took us down the shore and gave us a roll of quarters and said, go to the arcade, or he took us to Disney. Oh. So when I was young, we started going to Disney a lot because he had a temper and he didn't like to say, I'm sorry. So we went to Disney a lot. So it's not that I liked Disney so much, but for me as an adult, I just equate it subconsciously. And now as I'm, as I'm, I'm older, I get it. That's always been like the happy place because sure. that was when everything, there was never any problems. Like I knew my mom was happy because she saw the kids happy. Like my brother and I were happy there. My father liked to show off and he was like, yeah, you could buy that. You could do that. You could. So it was just a week of pure bliss. What, what, did, what did that do for a living? 
a typical blue collar guy. I, when, I, when we first met him, when my mother first met him, he was working on the corner store. He owned the corner store, little, you know, uh, um, gum and cards, greeting cards, that kind of corner store. Um, and that's how my mother met him because that was, he was, it, it, we grew up one block away, we, you know, across the street from the school we went to. This was the corner store in the apartment building that we lived in. So we would always stop in and my mother said, yeah, you can get gum or you can get a piece of candy. So, of course, you know, he was hitting on my mom and they connected or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I guess, that, wait, what was the question? What do you do for a living? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah, this is the funny thing. So he did that and then he bought two lemon ice trucks. Um, and then he bought another corner store and put the stuff, like, you know, the lemon ice truck sold lemon ice, one sold cotton candy, pop, popcorn. So then he put them in the corner store. And then he bought another corner store, and then he sold the corner stores, and he was working for Keeney Chemical, um, which is in Linden, I think, or, and then they moved to Kearney. That's a switch. Yeah, he was doing that for a while. Um, and then he quit doing that, and he went back into the corner store business. Um, and then he was doing very well, and then he wound up giving one away because he wanted to get into business with his, his uh, cousin at the, uh, the Italian deli that was in town that had our name, Ivino and Esposito's, but it was a different Ivino, but now... He and his cousin, who were both Ivinos, were buying it from the original Ivinos, and that was going to be their big thing. But then they found out that they didn't really get along well because they both ran businesses differently. And yeah, then yeah. after that, it was the downfall. And then, so I mean, he's always I I, I learned I learned hustle from him mm. because he's always working. Um, and after he wound up selling that business to make ends meet, he was literally working two full time jobs. He was working one from like four to 11 coming home resting for a little bit and then working another one from 12 to 7 mm. so and this was you know this is probably in my 30s that he mm -hmm. was doing this and i was helping out whenever i could kind of a thing you know he would come to me on the side and say you know give me a few bucks and i'll pay you back and he always did but i learned hustle from him but but so yes yeah, typical blue collar no college he may have been a may have been a grammar school dropout because really? his father left him uh early and left my grandmother to go marry my grandmother's best friend and that, I think, had a significant impact on him because he caused my mother to have agoraphobia because he wouldn't, every time she wanted to go someplace, he's like, where are you going? Where are you going? Where are you going? Because I think he had some abandonment issues. Oh, right. So he put that on her and then she developed agoraphobia and she wouldn't leave the house because every time she left the house, there was always a conflict. Mm. So, you know, again, that was probably why I have such tension with him as, a, as an adult. But yeah, so, you know, he's just kept local jobs um small corner store guy yeah. you know? and he's very good at it he can do math in his head like you know nobody's business he ran his business from you know uh, you know he used to just you know go to the corner and buy like a spiral notebook and that's you know where he kept his books and d did his business and he was really successful and really good at it mm. yeah so so he could afford disney and well you know what <laughs> he had to he had to to make <laughs> yeah. up listen there were table flippings there yeah, was yeah. there was like those kind of like right. you know just look I never watched the show, but if you, I, it was like you know Tony Soprano kind of a thing, you know, okay. like you know this is my house, you know. I, you never, never watched The Sopranos. No, you're an Italian from Belleville, and you yeah. never watched The Sopranos. So I'm not. I, I don't identify with my Italian heritage in any way, shape, or form. At least not since I I grew out of that Guido phase that I okay. probably went through. Um, but I also don't like the idea of like these shows exploiting okay. a particular nationality or heritage because everybody else. 
who sees those shows thinks that every Italian is like that. And right, everybody right. who lives in that area is like that. My friend once told me a story. He was in the bagel shop in, 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 in Belleville. And these guys were like driving around. They wanted to find where Tony Soprano lived. And my friend was like, you know, there wasn't really a Tony Soprano. That's just a show. Like, no, but it's based on a true story. Like, where is it? And he's like, no, 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 no. This is, it's fake. It's, but people come to that town and they think everybody like, and listen, there were mobsters. My grandfather was in the mob. My, my father, fortunately, never went down that route. You know, so he's always been, he, he will never tell the truth, but he's always been an honest man. Very, 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 you know, hard to understand that. But he doesn't, he never would get into anything that was like that. Mm. Um, but his grandfather drove for the mob and his stepmom, I mean, his father drove for the mob and his 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 stepmom, she was like, you know, she ran numbers, you know. So mm. I mean, my father, my father went to uh, uh, Florida and and went to uh, I don't know if you're familiar, Richie the Boots Estate. Uh, you know, my grandfather, yeah, it was you know a big local mob legend, and you know, so my father knew these people, and and but fortunately he was never in it. So mm. yeah, but it was like that. So yeah, so I've never done The Sopranos. I've never done Goodfellas. My friend dragged me to go see Casino. In the movies, and I was like, "This is not for me." You never seen Goodfellas? I mean, I've seen bits and pieces of it, and it's a fucking great. Movie. I, I, I listen. I know it is like the clips that I've seen. I think I think Ray Liotta doesn't play it straight. I think he's being sarcastic in the movie, but he's doing such a really good job, and I get it. I just really just don't, I, I'm not like, like to me. It's those movies are like world star hip hop. Okay, you know, it's right. like it's like you just. I feel like world Playing star hip hop. The there's some white guy behind the scenes in world star hip hop that just is like, yeah, send me the videos, and I'm just gonna, yep, run the stereotypes, and mm -hmm. and 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 I. That's how it feels to me. I just, I just can't get into it. Mm -hmm. I just, yeah. Uh, but I, I mean, I'm the same. Like, I won't watch world star hip hop for the same reason. Like, I just mm -hmm. don't like the exploitation of a stereotype and everybody, you know, especially teaching in Newark and my kids are always, you know, whenever there's like, you know, somebody says something and they're using oh, world star. And I'm like, yeah, just, yeah, yeah, yeah. that really, really, that's a, that, that bothers yeah, me. Yeah. It, I remember, um, there weren't too many fights in the first school that I taught in, but you know, there's some fights once in a while sure. in Montclair and, uh, it just, it still d really disappoints me when the first thing they all do is take their phones out. Yeah, uh, yeah it's, you know, but. man, I was lying on the street on Broad Street, <laughs> and I look up and I'm like, I'm in so much pain. I'm like, I didn't pass out. I'm feeling my neck, and I'm trying to take my helmet off because I can't breathe. And I see three people with phones, and I'm like, I'm hoping they're calling nine one one, but there's right. a very strong possibility they're just yeah. getting their their likes and their views up. You know, mm -hmm. it's that's just, I mean, that's one of the, you know, it's a culture thing at this point. Right. Yeah. The ubiquitous cell phone and how mm -hmm. it's being used and. You know, I think World Stars kind of died down a little bit. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, thankfully, but yeah. Right. So no, 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 none of those mobsters. I, I mean, I don't even know if I've seen Godfather. Like, I know that I've seen. I'm, I'm about to flip the table. <laughs> Please don't. It'll traumatize you, but I'm about to flip the table. <laughs> I've seen parts of it. I've seen parts of it. Like, I know Godfather. The first one is the really good one, and I know the third one stinks. Andy Garcia and Sophia. What's her? Uh, uh, Coppola's. Yeah, I've never seen three. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, I get it. I get it. But don't forget, the mob are the ones who, you know, brought the drugs in and destroyed yeah. the community. So I'll never, I'll never, you know, forget that. Whenever my family used to talk about all oh, the good old days, you know, with the, and the mob used to keep the streets clean. I'm like, they ran protection rackets and yeah, then yeah, they yeah. had to make the day. They they're the ones who made the decision to bring in, you know, the, the, the drugs, you sure. know, Frank Sinatra. It was like, you know, the, the, the figurehead of, of, of the entire American crime family. And that guy's the one who snapped his finger so that he could have Don Rickles perform for Ronald Reagan, you know, and, and our, that's American politics, you know, and mm. I'm just, just, that's just not for me.
Right on. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah I, you're not uh, the, only, the only person I've met who feels that way. Um, you know, so where do you think you got um, this? Because um, you said you don't, you don't necessarily identify much with your Italian heritage, but so where did you get this um, not wanting to see people exploited? This sort of, I guess, you know, maybe from what I know of you too and your teaching and stuff, you know, this, um, you know, uh, drive for equity, I guess, you know. I think, believe it or not, I, I, I'm sure there was some time before and maybe some time afterwards where it kind of really started, but do the right thing. Spike Lee, like that movie for me will always, like that's, that was such an aha moment for me. And like I said, you couldn't go into that movie thinking, you know, I'm white and I'm great. And, and 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 be changed. So I feel like there had to be something going on before then. When I was in Rutgers, so I can't remember when what year the movie came out, but it was probably close. But I remember in Rutgers, I was also I, my buddy and I jo- we joined the political science organization and we ran to become officers because we thought the Ukrainian girls on campus were super hot. <laughs> so we thought we could do stuff with them. But because of where my where our offices were located, I also became very close friends with uh, the guys who were running black organization of students. Okay. So I started going to their meetings to find out what was going on. Like, you know, this was all new to me. Like, mm. and I was like, I, I don't understand what these what your problems are. Because for me, it was like, we're a political science organization. We just want to be fun and do things. But then I'm thinking like, okay, wait a second. We're the political science organization and we're not doing anything political. Mm. And then here's the black organization and they were like protesting stuff. And so I think that that whole time period of me kind of becoming friends with people in the black organization of students and going to their meetings, then going to see, and I went to go see Do the Right Thing with like, you know, the some of the kids that I grew up with. And I walked out of that movie and I was just like blown away. And, you know, you know, I had a couple of friends who walked out of that movie and they're like, you know, all these fucking blacks and always, and I'm like, I'm like, no, man, like that was, so then I, I kind of started to, to dive into, you know, experiencing things like that. I mean, here I am, I was in school in Newark. Um, you know, I grew up in Newark, but I had a very, you know, Italian, white, iron bound, this section perspective, you know, I didn't really have much other perspective. So yeah, you know, just like talking to more people and then starting to read things and starting to dip into, you know, uh, you know, uh, other films and and looking around and other music you know here you know you, t- you when you grow up italian white in belleville you know you're listening to freaking black it's just like you can do the right thing it's like you know who are all your idols you know you got, you got, you got all these you know people up on the wall you got to put some black people up on the wall but you know who do you, you like michael jordan and and you, you and then suddenly you're thinking like well yeah you know like what well, so so why am i white and why am i you know growing up in this household and and is how do i feel about that and i started really kind of get into you know conflicts at home as a result of that because now i'm like now i get it now Mm. i get where you came from and i now remember you know when you know younger when i heard stories of my father and the kind of things that they did for fun in newark and because you know they're my father you know you know post rebellion you know and he's thinking you know that blacks caused the rebellion and you know what he would say is the riot and i'm thinking you know no because you know if you really did any reading about it, you realize what was going on. So yeah, so it was a, a big transition that I guess that late eighties, early nineties. To the point like, you know, like where I was, you know, going so if we went if my friends and I said we're gonna go to uh 
uh, Webster Hall in New York City, which was a great club. They had all these different rooms. And, you know, the, the main room was all the club music. And then they had the side room with the pool table, which was rap music. But I was going downstairs into the basement where they were doing, like, you know, house and underground stuff. And that's where I was hanging out. And, I, you know, that's where I was dancing and, and doing all that. I was going dancing every every night. I could go out and hang out in the mm. city or go to, you know, local clubs. And, yeah, so I think, you know, the music helped. And, and and watching these movies and then just just talking to people and getting more friendly with mm -hmm. with people of color which you know like I said I grew up in Belleville and there were three black families mm -hmm. and you know now I'm like all right it's it's a big it's a big colorful world out there and I've really never left Newark you know since 86 because I went to college in Newark and then I had part-time job working at the courthouse doing title searching in Newark and then I was subbing in Newark and then eventually I got a job teaching in Newark mm -hmm. I mean very I mean I have you know my my work route took you know, I was working on Wall Street for a little bit. I got kicked off of that. Whoa, 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 okay. Let's talk about that. I didn't know that. I've known you for a while. I didn't know you. I don't think, I don't remember you saying anything about Wall Street. You might have. So how did you get involved in that coming from poli yeah. And why did you get kicked out? <laughs> um, so keep in mind, obviously, class clown in high school. Everything for me was, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be some humor in it. I went to law school and I dropped out inside the first couple months of law school and realized this wasn't for me. So now I'm a pre-med kicked out law school dropout and now i'm home and all my friends have you know if you're an accountant you get a job out of college your career just started whereas you know for me i'm like all right now what am i doing i'm literally i got a part-time job as a repo man i was working at a blockbuster i was subbing i was working at the family butcher i was doing seven or eight jobs you know just to try and like feel like i had money because my friends are making salary so one day I'm in the in, in, in the butcher and I'm slicing meat and uh, pre-vegetarian, obviously. Mm -hmm. And my cousin, who had been working for Chase Manhattan Bank, um, the corporate offices, comes in. He's like, look, you know, just so you know, we're looking for people. Um, so if you have any friends who graduated college and they want jobs, we're trying to get, you know, it's an entry-level position, not necessarily a college de degree requirement, but we're trying to get. And I said, I'll, I'll do it. And he looked at me. And I'm, this is my cousin who I've grown up with. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm like. Joey, listen to me. I know you know that I'm crazy. I said, but I'm, you know, I know how to be professional. You know, I've done, you know, I was a, I was a legislative aide for a little bit. I know how to put on nice clothes and, and, and sit with nice people and do nice things. So he, he, I convinced him to, to give me the job. And here it is. I'm buying suits now and I'm a suit man, suit man. Yeah, that's me. And I'm going to work for Wall Street. Chase Manhattan Bank had, a, um, their, you know, we were in the World Trade Center. We were in the, Sub basement, four down, four basements down, uh, right above the uh, the um, who was that wealthy New York dude Vanderbilt, one of them, not uh, not this wealthy New Yorker. We he has still had a vault down there. Well, his family did, so we were right above that. So I'm like, you know, great. I'm underground. I don't even see the lights. And I was doing what was known as bond servicing. So large corporations, they buy bonds so that they can accrue interest, so that they can in turn, um, pay their, their pension, you know, you know, whatever it's, it's, they earn, they invest in bonds. So I basically payable first of the month, 15th of month, 20, 25th, you know, money comes in. I find out where the money goes and I process it. It was a really entry level job. Um, but I wound up getting myself a job, got my buddy Joe a job. I got his friend Aldino a job. I got my friend Mark a job. Next thing you know, we're the wizards of wall street. Cause we figured out how to do the job. All these people had been doing this job for like the last 10 years, we figured out how to do a, a month's worth of work in two weeks. Mm. So we start taking two hour lunches and my cousin's like, where are you going? We're going to lunch. Well, you got work to do. No, we're done. It's like for the day. No, for the month, like mm. we're done. We're just waiting for the money to come in. So this was, 
you know, a, a kind of really exciting opportunity because I'm make, making at the time, 20, uh, was it? I want to say 18,000 or uh, it was 91, whatever good money at an entry level bank position w would be. And then my one friend, he wound up getting a job in accounting firm. The other guy got a job in accounting firm. And I'm like the lone, the last man standing. And with that, I, you know, I told my cousin, I'm like, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm, what do I do next? I, I, I know all this stuff. And there was this management trainee position that came along. And it was me and my one friend, Mark. And like all these new employees went to this meeting and I went to the meeting. And I had bumped into the guy who was running the management training thing. His name was Mike Gartner, who at the time was also, the, that was also the name of a New York Ranger. So he's like, I know. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So I used to talk to him in the elevator and I became really, now he was my cousin who was my boss. Actually, there was a guy in below my, my cousin who was my boss and then my cousin was the boss. This was the boss's the boss of the boss. So I became good friends. And he's like, you know, there's a management trainee program. You should try it. You, I think you could do very well. So I'm like, okay, this guy doesn't know me. I can't even do math. Mm. Next thing I know, it's like 50 people, 40 people. 30 people narrowing down the field and I'm still in this management training like competition and it comes down to two people me and my buddy who graduated with a finance degree from Syracuse and I'm just and this is and it's solely based on character at this point they're not asking you to do things they're like you know every little thing is an interview they're talking to you and it's like these other managers are taking you through the bank and, and they're talking to you and I you know like if it comes down to personality charm or whatever I, 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 I've already convinced you that I can do this job and I'm mm. And then when it came down to it, I'm like, my goodness, I am going to take a job from my buddy and a job that I can't do just because I'm trying to bullshit you and make you think that. I said, you know, and I, I pulled out of the program. I'm like, no, give it to him. And now he's been in the bank this whole time and now he's making six figures. So with that, I transferred to another area. And now this is global pension accounting. And again, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm servicing these global, it's it's the same idea, but now I'm on the money side. So, you know, Mack Trucks has an account with us and they're like, okay, well, you know, we, we we're taking our, our, our employee pension contributions. We want to sweep them into this particular fund overnight so that we can get $15 million into there for 4% interest overnight. And then they take that money. That's how they, they're able to feed and fuel their pensions and, and you know, and, and so on and so forth. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever it is. Still have no idea what that, that's the most I can explain to you, even though I did the job for maybe a year or so. I have no idea. And I, I'm, I'm, I, I, what they did wrong was they put my cubicle right near the copy machine. So in my cubicle, I was able to stick my foot under my table and reach the corner of the copier machine. So anytime anybody came to make copies, I could work on my computer and I would kick the, the copier machine and make it like vibrate and shake. And they would call the service guy. The service guy would come and he'd start making copies and nothing would happen. <laughs> as soon as he's like, all right, he goes, I did everything. And then as soon as- the class clown. Absolutely. And so as soon as he walked away and the next person would go to make the copies, I would kick the thing out. I was, they gave us all these corporate mugs. Chase, now, now we moved to Metrotech in Brooklyn. They gave us these corporate mugs and it's like, a, it's, a, it's a coffee, big giant coffee mug. And you, free coffee, you know, not coffee, you pay 25 cents and it's, you know, 25 cent refills for your coffee. I didn't drink coffee, but they had like a, an ice cream bar. They had pizza, you know, a cafeteria. So I would shove pizza in that thing. I would fill it with M&Ms, whatever. And I would walk through the line and pretend I had a coffee, hot stuff, hot stuff, and give them a quarter. And I would walk, walk. <laughs> so, and then a, a couple times, you know, like I just, you know, I just, just get into trouble doing pranks yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. So after a while, I realized that it wasn't for me one night um, when I lost a $15 million transfer 
and uh, I, you know, it was we were trying to get you know we we put a trade out there, and you know the the five o'clock deadline hits in, but it it was I put it out so late that you know it was it left Chase in time, but it, where it was supposed to go, it never made. So there you got fifteen million dollars in limbo, and the bank has to cover the interest now for this company that wanted it in a six percent overnight account. This sounds like I know what I'm doing, right? But I didn't. So, you know, my boss is like, you just, you know, cost the bank, this department, you know, money because we got the money back. But I'm like, oh, so I'm like, this isn't for me. So mm. with that, I tell my dad, I'm like, that's it. I can't do this anymore. I, you know, I, I, I'm going to open up a comic book store because one of the things that I have been doing was like buying tons and tons of comics. I'm like, this is for me. Like my dad will teach me how to run a business. You know, I, I he can come help me out in the store and blah, blah, blah. I, I'm going to open up my own store. This is it. I can't. I, so that was my big thing. And with that, my father's like, well, you know, you should have something to fall back on. You know, you just, you know, you know, and my, my aunt who had been a teacher was like, you know, you know, go back to school to be a teacher. You had done the substitute teaching. You said you liked it. So, oh, that was good. Smooth. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Almost had a, uh, a dog uh, take all the wires down. Yeah. He stepped over it. All right. <laughs> so, so with that, I went, I started to go back to school to be a teacher and I was taking sick days and personal days and what, and eventually they call me in the office like, you know, I'm not, you know, my father's sick. I've been helping out with his business. And, and they're like, well, you know, we, you know, we, you got to get out of here. You know, this just isn't for you between the things you do with the copier machine. One day I was clipping my toenails. No. Yeah. Cause, cause my, well, my manager had told me there was a, a girl who was like freaked out by feet and he encouraged me to do it. Oh yeah. And he's yeah. like, do it, do it. I was like, you know, but the, but his boss saw it and didn't get the joke. So it's like, you know, ton, there's tons of stories, tons yeah, of, yeah. I, could, I could do an entire hour telling you about running in the rain and sliding in my suit because I thought it was fun and how we used to run, I used to run across uh, Broadway and hop on the, t you know, slide across the roofs of the, the, the hoods of the cabs in my suit and I just, it was just, <laughs> I had no business doing it. It's like a bad 80s movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you can put that, you know, cue the Judd Nelson soundtrack and it's, it's a, so I, when I go back to school to be a teacher and as I'm doing this, I'm like, this is really cool and that was it. I never looked back and that's yeah. how I stumbled into you. So like I said, Med school, no law school dropout. Wall Street kicked off, and then finally stumble into teaching. Yeah, I was I'll... I was going to ask you what got you into teaching, but it was more of like a let's have something to fall back on thing. Yeah, and, I, I, that's... and you just you just took to it. Yeah, it was literally like you know I, okay this makes sense you know I get out of school at three I'll go home you know freshen up I'll open up the comic book store at four o'clock or I'll have my dad open it up at two and and then I'm off all summer I can you know this is just strictly uh, what I need to do to you know have something to fall back on. But once I started doing it, it was just it was just phenomenal. It was a phenomenal experience. So one of the things that, that it's hard to to talk to people, at least I find it hard to talk to people about, when they say like you know why do you like teaching and that sort of thing, and and it's hard to make what's implicit about the job that's like like explicit and explain it to people, you know. I mean, so what what do you love about it? I mean, I've done so many different things, and I couldn't equate it to anything else except. So the excitement that I, and I guess this segues us into something, but I'll, I'm going to hang in teacher for a little bit. It's like when I've been on stage and performing in front of like, say, a thousand yes, people. Yeah, I was going to talk and, about that. And so. there's like cheering and like, you know, like afterwards, like meeting people and connecting people. And like knowing that you did something good because there's a, a, a this, this reaction to it. Mm -hmm. When I walked away from the band, I didn't have a problem with it because I got that same feeling of accomplishment in the classroom. 
And and I'll I'll be honest with you, like my teaching style has changed over the years because when I first started sure. teaching, it was like a sit down, shut up school, and I wasn't a sit down, shut up guy. Mm. So I immediately made like this crazy impact of like, oh wait a second, like he he cares. You know, I was going to kids' houses, um, you know, uh, helping kids. I was at school from seven in the morning to six, which I think a lot of us, I think a lot of us in our circle probably are like you know those ultra committed teachers, you know, early on in their careers who then realize we started experiencing burnout, not because of the kids, but for other reasons. So I, I was really committed. And, and for me too, it was, it was Nork. You know, I had done my student teaching in Montclair. I had done subbing in so many of the suburbs. But for me, there was just always this this line, you know, straight to Nork. So I knew that I wanted to teach in Nork. And I got a job at a, a Barringer Prep, which was the ninth grade for Barringer High School. And it was probably one of the worst schools in the district. Mm. That one year there to me feels like five years. You know, there was guns, knives, fights, blood machetes they set a girl's hair on fire this was all and my first experience was um state takeover and the state said nork you need to fill all your vacancies so they did these line interviews and there was literally 1500 people applying for 125 positions i got one of the positions 125 people got hired by december 75 had already quit wow I go to Barringer Prep, I show up, they had no classes for me, no schedule for me because they didn't know that they were going to have to hire me. And I'm sitting in the auditorium and I'm doing all the, you know, hang out in the auditorium with all the kids who don't have schedules. And in, this, in September, these are all like new registrars and, you know, and so there's a lot of kids. By October, I still don't have classes. I'm still sitting in the auditorium with like five kids. And uh, finally, I start walking. Now I have no kids and I'm walking around the building and I'm seeing overcrowded classrooms. And again, this all kind of, you know, fits into like what my fight has always been about. And I see kids in overcrowded classrooms. I see like, you know, old teachers who are just kind of like not doing anything and mm-hmm. which I totally get now that I'm an old teacher. <laughs> but I went down to the, 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 the principal, the scheduling guy, and I'm like, look, I said, just pretty kind of, kind of pretty simple. Just open up sections that match all the other history classes. And that's my schedule. So I learned something very significant in those two months of like, you know, I, you don't have to try and figure out a schedule for me. Like if period one has a history class and it's overcrowded, you open up a new section, period four. So I, you know, I, I wound up getting my schedule. So and then, of course, this, the vice principal goes to all these teachers and goes, listen, you have an overcrowded class. Uh, pick some of your kids and we're going to take them out. <laughs> they get to choose? Oh, my God. So it's hysterical because as a teacher, you know exactly what happens. So I, so. I don't have classroom, but now I have a schedule and I have kids. And now my kids are the, by October, you know which kids you are going to be the kids who are going to be the kids that are going to be struggling in your classroom or the kids that, you know, the classic teacher will refer to as the knuckleheads. So I got all those kids. I got the low performers and the knuckleheads. Mm-hmm. And now I don't have a place for them. So they're like, well, we're going to get you a, a chalkboard and we're going to put it in the cafeteria where yeah. the health classes are going on and where the workers are hanging out watching Ricky Lake. And I'm, I'm like, this isn't working. Like I wanted to teach. And my kids are on a cafeteria table and there's a health class where they weren't doing anything right next to me on the table next. To me. So I figured out the balcony of the auditorium was locked mm. um, because, you know, you didn't want kids going onto the balcony of the auditorium, you know. So I stacked up a couple of desks in the, the regular part of the auditorium and I climbed up, you know, jumped and shimmied up. I was a big climber. I used to climb on all the walls and rockers and everything and the parking garage. Just I'm a, I like doing that. So it was all leading me towards climbing up to the balcony of the auditorium, getting a broom, kicking open the door, you know, it was nailed shut, kicking open the door, sweeping it out, taking my sister's three foot by four foot chalkboard that we used to play teacher on at home, 
figuring out a way to prop it up in my class. And now I had a classroom, no circulation, no real lighting, but it was quiet. And this is where my kids are. And I remember Aileen Lagardo, she came to visit me in the hospital three weeks ago from my very first year of teaching. Mm. And, you know, I still talk to kids, Roberto Harris from my first year of teaching. I still talk to kids from that first year and they remember, you know, me working my towel off and, you know, in all my free periods, walking around the building and getting to know the kids and getting to know what's going on and in the community and going two blocks north and two blocks south. And I was, I mean, like I was, I was in it mm. and it was, it was, it was just, so why do I like teaching? First of all, I love being able to, to, to give back to Newark. So for me, it's been, you know, I, I feel like I'm trying to make up for when I got hired at Barringer Prep, I was just another vowel. It was all white Italian vowels, Stradaccio, Cardasco, uh, uh, Scavone, uh, Petrozino. And they're like, now we got an Iavino. This is perfect. And they, they, it took them. <laughs> Add a, to the collection. Right. It took them a couple months to, they, they knew right away that, that I was not one of them um, at that point. So for me, I was, I, I, I wanted to make sure that these kids understood that I, I wasn't like these others who just, at that point, everybody in that building, you know, really, there wasn't, there wasn't anything going on. It was a sit down, shut up. You know, so long as you can get the kids to behave, you must be doing something great. But, you know, let's try and teach them too. So I felt like I was doing some of that corrective work, at least showing the kids that, you know, that there's a, you know, there's a white Italian who actually cares about them in a way that some, and, you know, and I'm, I'm probably mischaracterizing because I'm sure there's, there were some really good teachers who, who, who did care, but there's a select few that unfortunately wound up in my next school too. So, so, for, and so why do I love teaching? It's just, you know, you're able to connect with kids. Um, I, high school, I did middle school and I think, I think that would be a big mistake if I ever spent any more time in middle school. Cause yeah, I, I could never do it. I, just, I, just think they're I don't even think I could do ninth grade anymore. I could do ninth grade, but, but yeah, I know when you're dealing with 11th and 12th graders, you're dealing with a, a different maturity level. The brain is different. The content is different. How you can connect and relate to them is different. So yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, teaching is also about, you know, I, I teach from the perspective of the oppressed in my classroom. So, you know, I, I haven't used a textbook in 15 years and now I just found out that they might be giving us a textbook and I'm, I'm getting his anxiety from that because I'm like, no, we don't oh, yeah, want text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 showing kids, you know, uh, uh, you know that that there's historic oppression that they need to understand what their place is, and just being able to do that. Um, but more importantly, too, it's it's uh, you know, kids who graduate, you know, they're coming. You know, I was in the hospital. I had kids who fifth period has always been a, a rough period for me. Crystal Byers, my fifth period class, sat at my second desk. She graduated like three, four years ago, and we battled. She came to see me in the hospital. She brought flowers and a card, and, and it was just like, like I, you know, you realize that you connected to somebody, and here it is, you know, you thought we had a great relationship, you know, where I know you don't like me, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep working at it, keep working at it, keep working at it, and you can graduate and hate me. She didn't. We graduate. She graduated, and we, you know, we stay in touch. And she, she likes me. So, mm. I mean, those kinds of connections, and you know, the, seeing the kids succeed, and and uh, uh, you know, every four years, you know, or it's, it's every year. But when you see the kids who you had four years ago graduate, and you're like, all right, this is great, you know, and and you know, unfortunately, you don't see all of them graduate sure. college, and some of them, you know, wind up in down different roads, and unfortunately, some of them go in the military, and you have to show your support and. You know, I love you, you know, even though you made that choice and everything. But, you know, it's an intangible for the most part. But like I said, I really can very easily equate it to that that feeling of of absolute joy that you have when you know you're standing on stage and you connect 
and you have these strangers mm -hmm. who think, you know, hey, you just did something great and walking home each day and feeling really good about what you did. Where, where did it click to teach from, from that perspective of, of the oppressed? How did that develop? So over time in the city, I got more involved in terms of, you know, uh, getting involved in, in the educational choices that uh, the district was making. I got, I, you know, at some point you get labeled like the good teacher, like, oh, go see Ivy, you know, you know, he knows what he's doing. And, and then, uh, you know, if they're going to bring in some new curriculum, you know, well, you know, bring Ivy, you know, in. so I, I started to get a little bit more of that, you know, from, from the higher ups or whatever. And, and a, a lot of that was still that, that guy who was able to convince people like that he was much better at what he was, or, you know, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to code switch with you. And we're going to talk about, you know, uh, you know, the other side of, uh, of education. And I could do that, play that game with you too. So seeing the kinds of choices that were being made in terms of the materials, in terms of, you know, what, what I think kids in a, in a history class should know, you know, like when you're teaching world history and how many times do kids need to, you know, learn about ancient Greece and ancient Rome and then the textbooks not talking about, you know, what, what you could find interesting about that. It's just always the same. Here's mythology and the birthplace of democracy. And it's like, it's just, mm. just the same thing over and over again. So just getting bored. You know, and trying to think like, all right, these kids don't need that. They need to come out of, you know, 12 years of high school in Newark. If I'm getting them their last four years, and I got lucky and I stayed a couple times with kids a couple years as they moved me up into like testing grades and so on. Being able to like get them to really start to think about the world around them and think to ask questions. That's it. I want critical thinkers. I want them to be able to know something and be able to know what questions they need to ask right. about it. So it sounds like it was experiential and yeah. not like you know, reading Gloria Lights and Billings or something like that. You know? No, right. no, I didn't, I didn't do a lot of that reading. Yeah. I, I picked up a lot of that when I first started meeting, you know, when we first started doing YPAR yeah. um, and then getting involved in educational activism in Newark and like really putting my neck on the line and starting to learn mm -hmm. about unionism and like all of that. It was like one of those things like I was doing it, but I didn't know the history yeah. behind it. Yeah. And then going back and reading things and going, yeah, well, that's it. That was it. Mm -hmm. And for me too, a lot of it, was uh, you know my, my Buddhism you know trying to trying to you know bring this sense of uh, of understanding of your place and knowing that that you're not locked in that place and trying to get kids to understand and you know being being a, you know a, as much of myself as a as, as sound spiritually as I can be to to be able to help my my students who needed some sense of grounding to be able to you know teach that kind of stuff to them too so it was a, yeah it was a a big transition for me in terms of going from you know. Hey, well, you know, and then Nork started changing. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when you see, you know, uh, I, I don't even remember why, but when you see someone like Mayor Booker and you see Cammie Anderson, like you, yeah, yeah. you know that. That was an interesting time period. Right. So I mean, interesting is kind of make, makes it sound good. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. But for me, I realized, and, and, and all of us, you know, like people, you know, like, uh, you know, Brian and, and, and Rippy and, you know, all the other teachers in Nork, they, these, they, they, they were, they were, they knew and were fighting this fight before I got involved. But, we knew that at that point, these kids in high school, they're going to be voting in a couple of years. You know, like, so how do you as a history teacher in Newark ignore what's going on in Newark and not say, all right, now I'm now I'm tasked with with which is probably the most difficult challenge for every teacher. Some of us do it well and some of us say, F it, we're just going to fuck. Like, how do I get my kids to understand what role that they play as agents of change in their their city mm -hmm. give them agency without being that dude who's proselytizing and trying to tell kids what they need to know because mm -hmm. i don't want my kids to think like i do and believe what i do 
and just run around, you know, spewing Ayavinoisms. Like I want them to think about it, and maybe you know you'll you'll grow up and be a conservative. Maybe you'll grow up and be a liberal. But at the at the end of the day, I need you to realize that we're in Newark now because you know they were able to pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes and come in here. And Cory Booker's able to run this eight year campaign of you know I'm going to be the new good guy. Mm. And next thing you know, you had. Jeez, it was, it was before 2000. You have a over a decade of carpet bagging going on in Newark, and mm-hmm. you know these white saviors. And now you you have when Cor- I knew it was what, what he was doing when he decided he was going to connect the light rail from the dead end of the the Montclair line, the light rail now to Penn Station, and that was big because I said I know what he's doing. He you know because on, you know you've you've seen the changes in Montclair when all the people who couldn't afford to live in New York come to Montclair and they're double income no kid families and they're voting down every school budget cuz they're only in they're only in Montclair for the 5 hours to be to be fair we don't have an elected board or vote on budgets oh. just so you know well, that, but but the attitude right. is is well, the same. well it, it, it so if the elected school right it's not elected but they're going to at least at some point start to reflect the population sure. that they think yeah. is part of this listen nobody's going to deny that that the changes in Montclair right brought i mean it is it is a mecca of you know food and culture um you've got restaurants and yeah. music and all a lot fantastic. of brooklyn expats Ex- started coming exactly. in when they built the bay street train so thing. he he that that was his goal was to connect that line to penn station it helps out the montclair uh, commuters but now he was able to also get uh the studebaker loss the packard loss he was able to get teachers village like all this now suddenly we're going to start renovating and nor could become a commuter town as well and you know you see these beautiful you know uh, uh, apartments and condos going up and you know i tell my, my people all the time say like, you know they're like oh this is great for nork i'm like yeah it's great for nork because they're going to hire norkers to be the security guard and the custodians and in the meantime you've got all these brooklyn expats now you've got harrison expats who are brooklyn expats you, know, you can't even afford to live in williamsburg when i was a kid williamsburg you didn't want to go live in williamsburg right? yeah, yeah. you didn't want to walk in williamsburg but hold on a second newark has a whole food so everything's okay oh my god and you know, you, you know what that was for, right? I know. I, That's I, I, just I for the Prudential that. commuters, uh, right, so that right. they can do their food shop and get the three percent. You know, they go there and, and that's it. They leave work and three percent tax. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the the people that are living in these, you know, like I said, these Packard lofts and all these wonderful new high rises, these buildings, they're they're they don't work in Newark, and they sure as heck don't spend much time in New York. They go, I mean, in Newark, they go ha- hang out in New York. They're sleeping in Newark. But, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense to try and give them things to do in Newark. Halsey Street has some great little shops on it. And there's, there, you know, there's, there's a good enough pushback against gentrification that there are some really good locally owned um, businesses, some that are, you know, cultural for, you know, for, for most of the black and brown skinned people in Newark, as opposed to everything for the, the white commuter. So I think there's some benefit that that's that's occurred. But when you go through the South Ward and you realize that even Mayor Baraka has done little to to, to change the blight in those areas, I mean, mm. it's just, you know, I you know, I'm I'm disappointed. Honestly. He's been a, he's been a disappointment. I mean, given his activist background and you know who his right. family is and that sort of thing, you know. And and I think you know. that his story to me represents that perfect like. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I, 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 I get it. When I became an elected official of the union, you know, I, I, I'm no longer, I slept in a tent, you know, in Military Park. And, and I had a, you know, I spent, a, you know, one entire month of the summer in a beach chair in front of Two Cedar Street so that I could tell Cam Anderson every day she had to walk past me again. Like, I'm 
every day telling her, you know, don't sign the waiver to, you know, limit class sizes, you know, don't sign a waiver to limit, you know, like now I'm elected official. Now I have to, you know, I have to tone down my, my, my activism. Yeah, yeah. And that was tough. Not to say that that's equivocating anything that Barack has done because I, we all had high hopes, mm. but he became rapidly not now pales a comparison to Booker. Sure. But he definitely became the entire city's mayor. And we and right now we're we're at a tipping point. Within the next five years, almost fifty percent of our students are gonna be charter kids now. Mm. Once we hit that tipping point, the the public schools are gonna be it's gonna be nearly impossible to sustain the public school side. But he's the mayor of both of them. So he's doing what he needs to do. His unity slate that he's run in the last two school board elections were predominantly either political appointees or charter school. One of them is a charter school teacher. Mm. And she's on the North Public School Board. Mm. So that's that's to me has been a disappointment because how do you how do you expect to turn around your public schools when you know you're giving so much weight to the, the charter schools? The charter schools don't need any help. They do a great job without yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. They don't need, they need the public schools need help. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and and it's ironic too because, you know, there's some people on the Nork Anti Violence Coalition that I'm I'm really 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 close with. But when we first started doing Occupy Nork, which outlasted Occupy Wall Street, and most of the Occupy Wall Streets actually came to Occupy Nork. You know, Baraka came and he put a tent down with us, and I thought, yo, okay, this is. I mean, he never came and slept in it, <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but he came and put a tent down with us. And, uh, you know, the Nork Anti-Violence Coalition, like, they came. And I made some really good connections. That one of the, one of my good friends from Nork is African. He's, uh, you know, he is an absolute hardcore yeah, activist. Yeah. You know, I, you know, you know one, of my, one, of my, one of my great joys about being, you know, the Secretary of Church of the Union is, is now I'm like, all right, who, who are we giving donations to? So I'm like, I meet with my co-command, like, we're not donating to these politicians. You know, Teresa Ruiz will never get a cent from sure, us. Sure, yeah. Well, know, like she? she destroyed, she, I said, she did more damage to public education in the state than anybody else. But what I'm also able to do is 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 you know, be able to give money and donations through the North Teachers Union to, to those street-level organizations that are doing great things. What Africa does with his basketball program yeah. shames. I'm telling you, it's shame. I mean, the, the, he's like, you know, transforming lives and you know it's not just you know his kids you know at first you like you look at it, it's like oh it's, no like he's done it for like the for the last however many years that he's been doing it getting these kids turned around he's gone to trenton and argued about you know the you know, the prisons that they want to build and the, mm -hmm. the you know the, the practices and 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 he's argued at i mean he's been thrown out of more board meetings than anybody i've ever seen and he does not quit and i love him for it so i mean you know, being able to connect with someone like that, and that helps keep me on my toes too, because I have to be very aware of that. You know, like you know, what kind of level ally am I going to be? And sure. And so, being able to help him is is is, is great. And, and looking at you know, trying to create organizations within the North Teachers Union, which has been a slow process, slow mm. process of like going from bread and butter to more social justice issues. Yeah. In terms of the union, and and trying, and also understanding that when you have a union of of 3,700 plus members, that you've got, you probably have a large group of older conservatives. True. You probably have, you know, young kids who don't have, haven't formed those opinions yet. And you're trying to connect with those who are, you know, interested in kind of t transforming the union to social justice issues, but also acknowledging that the, the, the right wing conservative, you know, uh, push on public education has kept public teachers so busy that there's not time for them to be active as well.
Like, where do they find time for that? And now it's it's so difficult for me to walk into a school and say, nothing will change if we don't fight. And then saying like, you know, I'm sorry, you know, you're bombarded with schoolwork. I know that you're exhausted. I know that you also have a family. And so who am I talking to? Like, where are we going to find that next group of people? And unfortunately, the young kids are growing up in that environment. So they don't see anything wrong with it, a draconian evaluation system that's not judging you based on how your kids are performing, but but how are you performing on a group of kids that you didn't even have last year? You know, test scores and and, yeah. and, and they're just growing up in this, in this environment, right. uh, you know, trying to galvanize yeah. so that. There's, an, there's a political undereducation in in some corners of, of teaching and everything about education is so political that it, it's kind of a shame. You know, my union is much smaller, about a third of the size. You know, and I've thought about like, yeah, you know, we need like a social justice caucus or something like that, right? Uh <laughs> I know. You know what that would take to pull together. You yeah. Know, like that, I, listen, uh, yeah, yeah. we. I, I was able to, in one of the one of the first things that I did when I was secretary treasurer was tr- pull money from certain banks that we had our accounts in, um, and get them in local banks, get them in uh, credit unions, and get them out of like the large core. You know, pull money out of Wells Fargo and things like that. You know, Wells Fargo had you know, a, uh, was such a, a large component of, 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 the, of, of the big crash and all the bank balance and all those foreclosures. And here we are, a you know, public workers union that has you know, millions of dollars in that. So, so those were first things. Mm-hmm. Then it was, all right, so what committees can we get? So an LGBTQIA commun- uh, committee, um, a social justice committee, and then getting the right people on those committees on my executive board. And then trying to explain to your executive board, like, I'm not asking you to do work. I'm asking you to help get other people. To, that's, how you in, that's how you increase your involvement. You know, I was trying to bring a very Occupy structure to where it's, it's, it's the, the executive board is where we talk about the work that we've done um, and that, that you're on the executive board, you're, you're, you're participating in a committee and that committee is doing the work and then you're just reporting out and the committees are really where we want to see the power, you know, not on an executive board, not on a president and getting, you know, the executive board to see that when you're only meeting once a month and they're exhausted, they're coming from sure. a long day of work. And I'm thinking to myself like, yeah, it's easy for me. I'm single. I have no kids. Yeah. Um, my bills are relatively low because, you know, I, I, it's just me and I'm not paying off an education like you are. So it's very easy for me to, you know, say, hey, we need to, we need to. And there's been a lot of reflection in that in terms of like, all right, I, it can't be, you know, me chastising you for not being, you know, able to do you know, commit like I can commit. Mm. How do I get you to commit to what you're willing to commit to? Yeah, yeah. You know? And that's a, that's a challenge. It's it's a huge challenge. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I, um, well, <laughs> you know, have have shied away from getting too too involved. Um, just recently, I got a little more involved, and I had some mixed experiences, and so I'm pulling back again. But I get it. You know, it's it's. Um, it's the it's an it's an age old problem of mobilizing people. Who, right. So a couple things. At some point, we need to talk about Cake Boy. Oh yeah, sure. And I also want to know how you got into Buddhism. So which one do you want to do first? Um, let's do the band.
Okay, so that was part one of the interview with Michael, a.k.a. Iovino. Part two is going to cover his infamous days in a band, uh, his marriage, and his Buddhism. Here's the special request I was talking about. I have a long list of people that uh, I'd like to interview, but if you or someone you know is an everyday person who has an interesting story, and I think most everyday people do, feel free to contact me and suggest a guest. Well, how do you contact me? Go to BrianTalksToHumans.net, click on Contact on the top of the homepage, and at the next page you'll see my email and my social media. And while you're there, why not click on the button that takes you to Patreon so you can donate to the cause? Putting on a people's podcast is expensive, and your boy could use some help. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Stay human. Because all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Because all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the freaky people make the beauty of the world. Because all the freaky people make the beauty of the world. All the